2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. Think about the space shuttle. It used to be thought that if I want to go faster and faster, I need a longer and more pointed nose we got to go back to a rounded nose because by doing that, we move the shock weight off of the body. What we're concerned about is melting the vehicle. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm Vincent Aiello, and this week we have a conversation on hypersonics and how garden hoses and car traffic can be used to explain some of the key concepts. Now, it's with Mr. Danny Millman, who is a PhD, and it's hosted by Ken Katz, former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer. Take it away, Primetime. Probably 99% of the listeners of this episode have seen the movie Top Gun Maverick and the scene with the hypersonic Dark Star aircraft. In reality, hypersonic flight is not just for the movies. At present, it is an area of intense research and development. To help us understand hypersonics, we're joined by one of the nation's leading experts on hypersonic flight, Dr. Daniel Millman, call sign Doc. Welcome, Dr. Millman. Hi, I'm happy to be here, Kim. We like to start our podcast by introducing the guests, or I guess more accurately, having the uh, guests introduce themselves. So please tell us about your background, uh, both academic and military, and what you're doing today. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there, there are moments in our life, Ken, that tell us where we want to go. And I had one of those moments when I was growing up in San Antonio near Kelly and Lackland Air Force Base. I used to see C-5s flying near the house all the time. But when a 747 flew over my house with a space shuttle attached to the top of it, I knew at that moment I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. But like all good journeys, there was not a straight line path to where I thought I wanted to go, right? I went to Rice University. They don't have an aerospace engineering degree at Rice, so I majored in mechanical, but I did concentrate on the aero subjects. And then I got an opportunity to do a program called the Joint Institute for Advancement of Flight Sciences. It was a program between the George Washington University and NASA Langley. So basically, NASA paid for my tuition George Washington gave me a stipend, and we like to say it was not just a job, but it was indenture. Uh, we were uh, grad students working really hard for NASA, and that's where I first started studying hypersonic flow using a tool that was still in its infancy 
called uh, computational fluid dynamics. So I developed a passion for both of those and decided, yeah, I, I want to work on hypersonics. And I actually majored in astronautics, so still not an aerospace engineer, but I was headed in that direction. And then I had another one of those moments, Ken, where my 74 Maverick broke down on me, as it often did. So I had to uh, walk into work. And as I was walking to NASA Langley, I had to walk past the uh, runway at Langley Air Force Base. And now an F-15 flew about 50 feet over my head. And I said, maybe I want to be a pilot. Maybe that's what I want to do. So uh, the next day I went to the recruiter's office and I signed up and joined the Air Force and thought I left that engineering career behind me. But as I got into the Air Force and realized what my opportunities were, even though after undergraduate pilot training, the Air Force said I could get out and uh, not serve any more time because they had too many pilots at the time. I said, no, I want to stay in because now I want to be a test pilot. I want to do both the engineering and the flying. So I did not get an F-15 out of pilot training. My dream aircraft, I got a B-52 to mine on, which was kind of a letdown. But it turns out that if you want to do hypersonics in the Air Force, the B-52 is actually a pretty good choice. I didn't know it at the time, but somebody upstairs was looking out after me. So I went to uh, Minot, spent a lot of time flying buffs and T-38s on the weekend, deployed out to Guam, and I met my uh, wife out there, Korean lady living in Guam. Uh, and in fact, this year, uh, we'll have been married for 30 years. So, you know, you never know where you're going to find love, I guess. So we uh, moved to uh, Barksdale, and I was an aircraft commander and instructor pilot there. And got picked up for uh, test pilot school. Went out to Edwards and then into the uh, 419th where I did a tour at Bomber Tests. Flew uh, a lot of great missions, a lot of new weapons. Was qualified in both the B-1 and the buff, the big ugly fat fella. And uh, had a good time flying out there, but that engineering bug was still in me. So after uh, the 419th, I went to uh, the Air Force Institute of Technology and finally got that PhD in aeronautical engineering. So it took a long time to get there, but I finally got there. Then returned and taught back at test pilot school for a year. And then I went over to this little group that had been working hypersonics at Edwards for really a long time. My chief engineer was on the X-15 program. And uh, we convinced the wing commander and the uh, center commander that it was time to stand up a hypersonic combined test force. We were testing a lot of different hypersonic aircraft including the uh, X-51. And in fact, the first launch of the X-51 was actually Mike Finney flight at Edwards. Retired out of the military, and I became an engineering fellow at Booz Allen Hamilton for hypersonics. And I was actually asked to consult with a company called Stratolaunch, and then they had an opportunity, and now I'm here as the uh, chief technical officer. So kind of a circuitous route, but I'm doing the two things that I love the most, hypersonics and flight tests. Well, it's really a small world because uh, when you and I were talking before the recording began, uh, we realized that we not only had served in the same squadron at Edwards, although in different decades, but we knew a lot of people in common. We even flew in the same aircraft. That's right. Paul's 50. So uh, it's, uh, it is a small world. Anyway, that's a great uh, background, super introduction. Thank you. We're going to talk about hypersonic flow today. And other than the fact that hypersonic means real fast, I don't think that a lot of people understand what hypersonics is about and why it's special. 
So I want to get into the subject of how hypersonics is different from supersonic, not just a faster version of it, that there's significant differences. So let's start off with a basic question. What is hypersonic flow and why is it different than supersonic flow, not just a faster version of it? Yeah, you know, that's a real good question. Most folks will just say that uh, hypersonic flow is Mach 5 and leave it at that. And that's, you know, the general agreement, but it's really the physics that defines the flow. There's really only three well-defined Mach regimes, right? Subsonic, where you're less than the speed of sound. Sonic, and at the speed of sound, and then supersonic, above the speed of sound. And hypersonic is just a subset of that. Think of hypersonic like transonic flow not really a well-defined region. It depends on the shape of your airplane. When part of your airplane is at supersonic flow, part is at subsonic. We can't really put a number on it. It could be 0.7, it could be 0.9. When you start getting into the transonic flow, hypersonic flow, I think everyone can agree all the features of the physics of the flow exists about the time you get to five times the speed of sound, but there's nothing magical about that number. Mach 5. I want to kind of pick an example. And as we accelerate this airplane here, which we're going to talk about in a minute, how the airflow changes as it goes over. So we're going to start off in my mighty Piper Archer and we're screaming along at Mach 0.15. And we know that the air is sticky. It's viscous, as we say. And as it passes over the Archer, the boundary layer, which is the air right next to the airframe, causes drag. We also know that at Mach 0.15, as the mighty Piper Archer barrels through the air, the air is not compressing in front of it. We can treat the air as a constant density. But then if we put a lot of emphasis on streamlining and maybe we put a big 1,500 or 2,000 horsepower engine in the nose, we get something that looks like maybe a P-51 Mustang. And it's going Mach 0.6, let's say, Mach 0.7, but it's still really not compressing much at that speed. And we just get a lot more drag because as the boundary layer moves over, you know, it's causing drag. But if we change that airframe and we, we build it for supersonic flight, put in a jet engine and an afterburner like the F-15 that you flew, now we're going at supersonic speed. So now we're actually dealing with compressible flow and shock waves. So can you tell us how that compressible flow and those shock waves that F-15 is seeing as it's going uh, faster than the speed of sound, how that's different from what we were seeing in my Mighty Piper Archer? Yeah, and the way I like to approach this is kind of the way I taught at test pilot school. You know, we get a whole week of subsonic flow at test pilot school and then a whole week of supersonic flow. So we got to get the students to think differently, right? because the flow changes with the Mach number. And part of that is the compression. And the, the issue is most people, when they think about flows, they think about water because water is all around us. It's so pervasive. But it turns out water is kind of a funny fluid because it is incompressible. It doesn't change much in density, no matter the pressure that you put on it. And one of the phenomena because of that is if you've got water coming out the water hose and you put your finger over the water hose, uh, the water comes out faster. But as you move faster and faster in air, that doesn't hold true. And part of that is we can treat air as incompressible below about point Mach 3 because the density changes are less than about 10%. But now 
you're traveling much faster than Mach 3 if you put your metaphorical finger over a compressible supersonic flow of air coming out of a hose, the air comes out slower, not faster. So why is that? So what I used to tell students is don't think about compressible flow as water moving much faster. Think about it as how car traffic behaves. If I have five lanes of traffic and it suddenly goes down to one lane, the cars don't go through that one lane faster. They're going to slow down, right? Because Cars are compressible, and we don't like to compress the cars because then we have to pay for repairs and our insurance rates go up. So we figure out a way to slow down and merge so that we can get through that tighter spot, and air pretty much does the same thing. In fact, there are a lot of different phenomena with supersonic flow that you can use car traffic as an analogy. For example, you're, you're driving along at 50 miles per hour. You go around a turn, and you didn't have this information before because the road looked clear to you, but as you round the corner, you see everybody with brake lights on. You suddenly get information that something has changed, and in order to meet, say, the boundary condition, you have to be as slow as everyone else. you got to slam on your brakes. Air does the same thing at those high speeds. We call that a shockwave. The air didn't see that vehicle that's coming at it at supersonic speeds. It's just suddenly there, and it has to adjust. So that's what a shockwave is. I think you had mentioned something about air only being compressible. It it sounded like Mach 3 and above. Did you mean Mach 0.3 and above? Mach 0.3. Okay, good. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the key thing in that car example is that you didn't have the information that you needed, right? So Mach number is actually a measure of how well you're getting that information. At subsonic speeds, because you're below the speed of sound and that speed of sound is telling you what's in front of you, you can adjust, the air can adjust if something is coming at it because it knows it's coming. When the Mach number is greater than the speed of sound or your velocity is greater than the speed of sound and the Mach number is greater than one, the air is not getting that information. So really, Mach number is a measure of how well the air is getting information. So would it be correct to say that when I'm barreling along at Mach 0.15, the air is getting pushed around my airplane ahead of my airplane because, if you will, the pressure off the airplane is pushing ahead of it. But if I'm going Mach 1.5 in an F-15, the airplane's barreling through the air faster than the pressure can push the air in front of it. So the air, if you will, doesn't know that the airplane is going through it until the airplane actually hits it. That is absolutely correct. So let's go back to your Piper Archer example, right? The flow is incompressible. The information is traveling essentially at infinity because the air knows everything that's going on around it. That's kind of a consequence of incompressible flow. So I can build an airplane with a very blunt nose, and that's okay because the air is going to know, hey, there's something coming, I'm going to get out of the way. So we don't give much thought to streamlining, right? And from an engineering standpoint, we can neglect certain things. You can even neglect the boundary layer and get pretty good estimates of lift. You'll get zero estimates on drag, so then we have to bring boundary layer into the equation. But we can keep the equations very simple. So engineers like it when you can get closed form solutions. And that's what we do at about 0.3 Mach and below. 
But now as we push up faster and faster, and I'll use the B-52 as an example. You're at a high subsonic speed. The B-52 is actually designed to fly as high as 0.9 Mach. That means they, the engineers figured out how to shake the wing so that the air didn't go supersonic on the wing until you got to about 0.9 Mach. But now we do introduce the streamlining. We do have the rounded nose because we do have to care more about that boundary layer. But there is compression now. It's just not significant. And we can't ignore it anymore, but it doesn't change the form of our equations too much. But now we think about the F-15 or the F-22 going supersonic. We put a pointy nose on that airplane, right, because we want to reduce the strength of the shock waves. So if we can put the shock waves at an angle instead of flat to the flow, we can reduce the wave drag. So we put a pointy nose on the airplane, but for the most part, you can still ignore aerodynamic heating. All of that changes as you become a hypersonic vehicle. And you think about the space shuttle. It used to be thought that if I want to go faster and faster, I need a longer and more slender and more pointed nose. But now I get to a hypersonic airplane like the uh, space shuttle, I'm back to a rounded nose. And why is that? It's because heating can no longer be ignored. A lot of the physics that you could ignore to get to simplified solutions, that's not there anymore. And so we need to think about more of what's really happening in the flow and do less approximating. And that's what makes designing hypersonic vehicles a little more challenging. What would happen if the space shuttle had a pointy nose, like an, an F-15 or an F-22? What would happen? Well, I had a, a hypersonics professor that used to say, you can make the nose as sharp as you want on a hypersonic vehicle. Nature will blunt it for you. The heating will get so high that the nose would melt. And in fact, that was one of the issues in the 1950s. How do we do a reentry vehicle? We know it's coming in at hypersonic speeds, although I don't think they actually used the term hypersonic back then. How do we get these vehicles to reenter without melting? And it was a couple of NASA engineers that figured out we got to go back to a rounded nose because by doing that, we move the shock wave off of the body and we create a really strong shock. So the drag goes way up, but we're not concerned about drag for a reentry vehicle because we want it to slow down. What we're concerned about is melting the vehicle. So if I can move that shock wave away from the nose by rounding the nose, I can put all the heat into the air and less heat onto my vehicle. So we're screaming along at Mach 5 or Mach 6 or Mach 10 or something like that, and we have this shock layer, and the shock layer starts around the rounded nose of our vehicle, and then it sort of sweeps back at a pretty steep angle. What's going on in that shock layer? So if you think about a wedge going at about Mach 2, there's about a 20-degree difference between that wedge angle and the shock angle. But if that wedge were to go faster and faster, that shock angle, by the time you get to Mach 5, is already only about 3 degrees away from the wedge. And as you get to Mach 20, now it's only about 2. So there was a big change in that shock angle from Mach 2 to Mach 5, but a very small change from Mach 5 to Mach 20. So actually, and this is a principle of hypersonics, is something called Mach independence principle. It's like you're going so fast, it really doesn't matter how fast you're going. From an aerodynamic standpoint, properties don't change much. Your lift over drag doesn't change much. So you hear uh, the term hypersonic L over D because 
those things aren't changing much. What is changing, though, is that that shock is so close to the body, the friction that you're building up between the vehicle and the air next to that shock is also going up, and the heating is going up. So we think of hypersonic flow as defeating or breaking the heat barrier. We're trying to break the heat barrier. And the heating increases with the cube of your velocity. So it's pretty dramatic. One professor says the difference between Mach 6 and Mach 7 is things start melting at Mach 7, right? It's almost an exponential increase in heating the faster you go once you get into hypersonic speeds. So what's happening in that layer? Um, I've heard words like entropy, and my thermodynamics is unfortunately about 40 years rusty, having worked in some other areas. So can you talk about what's happening in that layer that's generating this immense amount of heat? where the layer and the shock waves are all interacting with each other in this hypersonic flight regime? Yeah, there are a couple of things going on in that shock layer. Entropy is a tough one to talk about, and I'm always nervous about talking about entropy without a whiteboard. I guess a definition would be the thermal energy that cannot do any work is one way to look at it. It's a difficult concept, and it was originally a mathematical construct that set a direction on which way heat can flow. What I used to tell my students is, if you put an ice cube on a hot plate, the ice cube isn't going to make the hot plate cooler and the ice cube colder, right? Intuitively, we know that. The ice cube will melt. Heat only flows in one direction, from hot to cold. And so entropy was originally defined to make sure that heat flowed in only one direction in the mathematics. And then we get into a statistical standpoint that talks about entropy being the uh, measure of disorder. And I know statistical mechanics is probably something your podcasters don't want to listen to, but I did find an interesting opening to a book. And in fact, it's so interesting, it's actually an internet meme. And it talks about Ludwig Boltzmann, who spent much of his life studying statistical mechanics, died in 1906 by his own hand. Paul Ehrenfest, carrying on the work, died similarly in 1933. Now it is our turn to study statistical mechanics. Perhaps it is wise to approach the subject cautiously. And in fact, I would say, let's not approach the subject at all. Let's just say that a measure of disorder can be related to the mixing in the flow. And so if we're mixing the flow, and these are rough terms, it's allowing heat to spread even more in the system. It's a different mechanism than turbulence, but it still leads to a higher mixing. As I mentioned before, in order to control the heat on a hypersonic body, we round the nose. A consequence of doing that is now we have a shock wave that's normal to the flow, that's at 90 degrees to the flow. And so that's a very strong shock. And the largest entropy change will happen along that stagnation line. As you move away from the nose, the shock begins to bend around the body and the entropy change becomes less. So what you're setting up is a gradient in the entropy of the flow. And because of where that gradient is strongest, it actually gets entrained into what we call the boundary layer, something else that's happening, that sticky fluid that you described next to the body. It's getting entrained in there, and the boundary layer is already causing heating, and now you're getting this additional mixing. So what what is the boundary layer? That's where the air is zero next to the wall, and then it increases rapidly to about 99% of the free stream value. That's the typical mechanical fluid definition of a boundary layer. 
So in let's go back to my mighty Piper Archer. Mm -hmm. I'm barreling through the air at 120 knots, but because the air is sticky, the air molecules that are right next to the skin of the airplane are actually going zero, right? Because they stick to the airplane. And then as I move away from the skin of the airplane, the air molecules start going faster and faster until they reach about 120 knots, which is the free stream flow. And that layer of air that's going between zero right next to my skin and 120, that's my boundary layer. That is your boundary layer. So how thick is that boundary layer is important to how much drag the airplane is seen. And for your Piper Archer, the thickness of that boundary layer, uh, I'm trying not to get too technical here, but it's proportional to one over the square root of the Reynolds number. The Reynolds number is a measure of inertial forces to viscous forces. And the faster you go, the higher the Reynolds number. The faster you go, the higher the Reynolds number. So even at uh, your Piper Archer, seeing a pretty high Reynolds number, but not too high, you take the square root of it and, and the one over, and you can see that's going to be a pretty small number. So the boundary layer is pretty thin. But as you go faster and faster, that boundary layer will grow. Now the problem is the boundary layer is also related to the square of the Mach number, directly proportional to the square of the Mach number. So as you go faster and faster, you tend to go higher and higher. That drives your Reynolds number down, making it small again, making your boundary layer thicker. Your Mach number is going up, and the square of it makes your boundary layer thicker and thicker. And so you can, for a hypersonic vehicle, have a boundary layer that goes all the way out to the shock layer. So now you have a fully viscous shock layer that's generating not only a whole lot of drag, but a whole lot of heat. And you add to that the entropy layer swallowing that's going on due to the shape of the shock wave you're adding a whole lot of heat into the fluid and onto your vehicle. So th those are a lot of complex concepts all coming together, generating heat on a hypersonic body. Let's talk about the air itself. The atmosphere that I'm flying through in my Mighty Piper Archer is, what, about 78% nitrogen and about, I think, 19, 20% oxygen and a little bit of everything else. And that's just what it is. And that air has certain characteristics in terms of its viscosity and its compressibility and in terms of how it transmits heat and certain characteristics. Now, as I go faster and faster through that air, it gets hotter and hotter. And as it gets hotter and hotter, things start to happen. The, the chemistry and physics of the air itself starts to change. So can you uh, tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So as a Hypersonic aerodynamicist, you, you're actually become an aerothermochemist. The words get bigger because you do have to concern yourself with the chemistry of the flow now. We typically consider about 78% oxygen to, or nitrogen, 22% oxygen, and we ignore all those other minute compounds that are in the air. So, in the numbers I'm going to give you are based at sea level pressure. If you go to higher altitudes, these numbers will come down, but I'm going to try and keep it simple here. As you get to temperatures of about 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the oxygen begins to break down to its basic elements, going from O2 to O. So now you have three species of gas, N2, O2, and O. As you get to about 6,700 degrees Fahrenheit, nitrogen begins to break down, 
from N2 to N, and some of that N combines with the O's. And so now you have five species of gas that you have to contend with, N2, O2, N, O, and NO, nitrous oxide. All of those things are uh, happening to the air, and you have to take into account all those species of gas when you're solving your fluid flow equations, right? It all comes into the continuity equation. But it gets even more difficult. As you get to about Mach 12 to Mach 15, the ions begin to form. You start stripping off electrons from these molecules, and you begin to form a plasma. That's about 15,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You begin to form a plasma sheet around your hypersonic body. Everybody's familiar with these radio blackouts that Apollo and the space shuttle and all these reentry vehicles went through. And that's because of this plasma that's forming around the outside of the vehicle. So is the reason this happens now, the ionized gas conducts electricity. So it's as if we surrounded the vehicle on the way down with like an aluminum bubble. The uh, ionization effectively is the same thing. That's exactly right. And those temperatures I give you, keep in mind, the temperature on the surface of the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So we are generating uh, temperatures in, in excess of what you see on the surface of the sun. Although the interior of the sun, we're still talking millions of degrees, so we're, we're nowhere near that. But that's just to give you an idea of how much heat we're generating in hypersonic flow. And so the initial problem in hypersonics was how do I get something to come back into the atmosphere and survive? The new problem in hypersonics is, how do I stay in the atmosphere at these high speeds, right? And that becomes the real technological problem in hypersonic flight. Now, as we get into the technology of hypersonic flight, if we're going to start off again with my Piper Archer, we can build airplanes out of aluminum because aluminum is inexpensive and it's easy to form and it's pretty lightweight. We have transparencies that are made out of plastic and they do just fine. And we have propulsion systems that work at low speeds. But I suspect that all those things start to change when we're going at enormous speeds and we have these incredible high temperatures, high heat fluxes through there. So let's talk about the challenges of hypersonic flight. The first one that comes to mind is propulsion. How do we push an airplane through the air? I don't think we can use a regular jet engine because I would assume that the air is coming so hot into the engine that the innards of the engine would just melt if we tried to uh, use a regular jet engine at these hypersonic speeds. So how do we push airplanes through the air at hypersonic speeds? Well, the most efficient way still to get to hypersonic speeds is with a rocket engine. That'll get you to the speed, but you may not be able to hold it very long, right? So that may not be important. I may just want to boost really fast and then glide a vehicle the rest of the way in. And that's really the concept with boost glide uh, weapons like Lockheed's Arrow. But if I want to maintain that speed, I'm going to need some sort of propulsion unit besides the rocket to maintain that speed. And that's where we get into concepts like scramjets, air-breathing engines. A scramjet is a supersonic combustion ramjet. And a ramjet is basically an engine with no moving parts. All the compression comes from the vehicle itself. But in a ramjet, you try and slow the air down to less than Mach 1. You have what they call a terminating shock. And then you can do the fuel mixing and shoot it out the back end and maintain about 3 to Mach 4 with a ramjet. If I want to get above Mach 5, I need to be able to keep that, the supersonic air supersonic throughout the engine. And that's why it's called a supersonic combustion ramjet. And it's 
been likened to keeping a match lit in hurricane force winds. How do you not blow out the match? And that's been the problem with uh, scramjets. But we've overcome that issue with programs like uh, X-43 using hydrogen, X-51 burning hydrocarbons, JP-7 in that case. And now uh, programs like Hawk and uh, other programs like that. So on the rocket side, you have to ask yourself, do I want to use a solid rocket motor to get me to conditions? And that's been typically the case for just about everything the Air Force has tested, with the exception of an incredible aircraft tested back in the 1960s called the X-15 that used a liquid rocket engine. And in fact, our own hypersonic test bed, the Talon A, uses liquid rockets as well. Let's uh, compare a conventional turbojet engine with a scramjet so we can better understand that. In a conventional turbojet engine, the air comes in the inlet and then it goes through a compressor, which is alternating, rotating and static blades such that the air gets compressed and hot. And then that compressed and hot air gets fuel introduced to it and it gets ignited. And so that raises the energy in the flow. And then that air, very high pressure, very hot, very energetic, squirts out the back of the engine. Some of that energy is taken up by a turbine, which turns the compressor. And some of that energy gets pushed out the back. And by Newton's third law, when it pushes out the back, the aircraft goes forward or gets thrust. And let's compare that now with a scramjet, which I think our listeners are going to be less familiar with. The air gets taken in the inlet, just like in a turbojet engine, but there's not a, a rotating compressor. You said, I think, that the airframe actually compresses the air. That's right. So the inlet design actually uses the front of the airplane to compress that air. So hypersonic vehicles are very integrated, propulsion and airframe. You can stick a turbojet or a turbofan engine on a pylon, and you can treat the jet and the aircraft as separately. You can't do that with a hypersonic vehicle. The front part of a hypersonic vehicle is actually providing a lot of that compression through the shock wave that we've been talking about. So if you can control where that shock goes, you can smoothly move that air into your scramjet. Okay, so we actually, though, have a similarity here, if I understand this correctly, because in the turbojet, the air is being compressed by a compressor. In the scramjet, the air is being compressed by the airframe in the inlet. But either way, we get compressed air that we introduce fuel to and ignite it. That's correct. And then, as we said, in a turbojet, that energetic air goes through a turbine to turn the compressor and then out the back. In a scramjet, there is no turbine to turn. It just goes out the back and creates thrust. That's correct. So the back part of your engine is also part of your nozzle. So again, the airframe and the engine have to be integrated and you have to design both together. Now, a scramjet wouldn't work at low speed because you just don't get the compression because you're not flying through the air fast enough. Right. So that's the age-old problem. How do I get the scramjet to light? Right, so the X-51, for example, put a ATACMS booster on the back of the vehicle. And the ATACMS booster took the whole stack after we dropped it off the B-52 at 0.78 Mach and accelerated out to about Mach four and a half. Then the booster comes off and the engine now has enough compression from the uh, X-51 shape itself 
to light the engine. So you have to find some way to get to that speed in order to get the engine to light. And there are different concepts for doing that, right? You'll see folks trying to do uh, combined cycle engines where I have a turbine that gets me to about Mach 3. Then the turbine shuts down and cocoons itself somehow so it doesn't melt because those compressor vanes you talk about, they would still want to turn in the flow. And above Mach 3, we would melt those vanes. So you got to cocoon off that engine and light your ramjet. The ramjet accelerates until you take over into scramjet mode. So that's the holy grail, right? So if I could do all that, I could take off and land from a runway with a hypersonic vehicle. And that was the whole concept of Dark Star in that movie. So we move from propulsion to aerothermodynamics. I know we've talked a lot about that, but what are some of the challenges here in order to make hypersonic flight practical? You know, we've talked about most of the challenges. What we didn't talk about were the tools that enable us to understand what's going on with the air, and that's computational fluid dynamics. Modern CFD has really advanced to the point, provided you build your grid correctly, there's still a dark art to it, but we can actually get a better understanding of how we need to shape our vehicles to optimize their shapes so that I get minimum drag and maximum inlet into my scramjets so that I can go fly these things. So I think modern CFD has really become the enabler for design of hypersonic vehicles. One of the things we didn't really touch on was that transition between laminar and turbulent flow. We don't care much about that with your Piper Archer because the drag is so low, but as you go faster and faster, not only do we want to streamline the vehicle, and keep the air flowing smoothly, almost in sheets, which is why we call it laminar flow. But at hypersonic speeds, turbulent flow is another mechanism for increasing heat. We wanna avoid turbulent flow where we can, often we cannot, so then we wanna know, well, where does the flow transition? Because if it transitions on a flight control surface, that's probably not good for our flight control surface. So we do a lot of computational studies to try and understand where that transition from laminar to turbulent flow will, will occur. It's a very active area of research. Let's talk about this computational fluid dynamics or CFD for a minute. If you go through engineering school, you learn that there's certain equations that govern the flow of a fluid. And those deal with things like temperature and pressures and densities. And you can certainly code up software to implement those equations. That's computational fluid dynamics. But how do you know that your computer program is actually spitting out answers that will match reality? How do you validate this computational fluid dynamics? Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, allveteran.com is here to help. All Veteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. 
No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. Well, the first step, and, and this is what I used to tell my students, the wonderful thing about computational fluid dynamics is you will always get an answer. But the terrible thing about computational fluid dynamics is you will always get an answer. How do you know that it's right? So when I was studying CFD back at NASA Langley in the 1980s, I was working with a group of folks that were kings of approximate methods. And it was amazing the things that they could estimate and get close to before computational fluid dynamics came into its own. I still use those approximate methods, back of the envelope calculations. And if my CFD is not giving me an answer that's near what I would expect from an approximate method, I question those results. So that's the first hurdle for me. Does it match my approximate methodology? The second is wind tunnels. You take your model and put it into a wind tunnel and you set up your computational fluid dynamics to match the conditions of the tunnel. And if your CFD isn't giving you the same answer as the tunnel and you verify that everything has been set up correctly, then you probably need to turn some knobs in your CFD code to match what the tunnel is giving you. So tunnel is a step closer to reality. Ultimately, you would want to get into flight tests. And then flight tests, as you probably said in the 419th many times, flight test is the only source of truth. So you take that flight test data and you use that to anchor not only your computational fluid dynamics models, but also informs how you should be doing wind tunnel testing. So there's, there's a holistic approach here that ends with flight tests. So flight testing really, in a way, is a way of just validating, I mean, it's much more than this, but it's largely a way of validating our computational methods. Absolutely. And it keeps our, we keep updating our computational methods because, as you all know, every time we fly, we learn something new. So as we move on into technological challenges for hypersonic flight, let's talk about materials. The Piper Archer that I fly is aluminum and it's got a uh, plexiglass windshield. Works great. Now, as we go faster and faster, we have to start changing our materials. If you're going to fly, let's say, Mach 3, like uh, XB-70 did, you have to either make the airplane out of titanium, or as the SR-71 was, or stainless steel like the B-70 was because the aluminum just can't handle those temperatures anymore. But we're talking about going a lot faster than that. So I'm not sure that titanium or stainless steel is even going to cut it. So what kinds of materials do we need so that we can have aircraft that can actually maintain their structural integrity into these incredibly hot temperatures? Well, I'm going to give you the uh, Seminole Test Pilot School answer. It depends, right? So... Let's say we want to go Mach 5 to Mach 7, somewhere in that range. We can use a metal called Inconel, which is basically a, a nickel alloy to get us to those higher temperatures. And in fact, the X-15 was built from Inconel. And they expected it would be able to handle temperatures from Mach 5 to Mach 6, and it did pretty well. They wanted to get to Mach 7, so how did they do that? They put an ablative surface 
that something that could burn away and take away the heat before it got to the ink canal. So they coated the ink canal with an ablative surface. And that's how Pete Knight did his run at Mach 6.7. But oh, by the way, this was before they understood a lot about hypersonics. The X-15 was teaching us about hypersonic flow. And so they wanted to test the dummy ramjet engine. And they put it on a pylon, because you can do that with airplanes, right? Add a pylon, put a dummy engine underneath, and go fly. What they discovered during that flight was that the shocks began to hit each other. And nobody had ever heard of shock-to-shock interactions. And those shocks coalesced at that pylon and melted the ink canal. And that takes a lot. Only Mach 6.7, they were still able to melt through the ink canal and the back part of the X-15. Pete Knight was not happy when he saw the damage to his airplane after he got on the ground. A little quick side story on that. The engine obviously fell off the airplane. Most folks thought it fell off when it stopped giving data. But my chief engineer, Johnny Armstrong, he was in charge of that engine. And he uh, went through the axial acceleration trace to see if there was a change in drag somewhere that would show where the engine came off. And he found one out near Edwards when Pete Knight was pitching out to land. And using a slide rule and radar data, he estimated where that engine would have landed, drove a Jeep out into the desert. It was only off by about 40 yards. So real good engineering on his part. Uh, And it goes to show the importance of being able to recover things, right? Because they learned a lot from that engine, even though it had melted off. But now I want to go faster and faster, and Inconel is probably not going to cut it for me anymore. So I start moving to some of the more exotic materials carbon, carbon alloys, carbon sick. There's all sorts of different exotic materials now that we can use. And oh, by the way, they're extremely difficult to manufacture, right? There are other solutions within that set. If I can come up with a thermal protection system, then maybe I don't have to use exotic materials, especially at the lower Mach numbers, we'll say it's still hypersonic speeds. For example, our Talonet is made from composites not something you would think about for a hypersonic vehicle. But if we wrap it with shuttle legacy technology, frizzy blankets and tiles, it would do just fine. And we expect it will do just fine from speeds above Mach 5, right? So thermal protection systems become important. We often hear about the heat shields and the drama of the heat shields in Apollo 11 and other programs, Apollo 13. Heat shields are designed to ablate again get rid of that heat and protect the uh, structure that's behind it. So a lot of different ways to attack this, not a lot of inexpensive ways to do this. And so there's still the challenge in being able to consistently manufacture and manufacture to a complex shape, carbon-carbon and those types of alloys to get to a lower cost hypersonic vehicle. Again, a very active area of research. Let's move to guidance and control. When you're flying a, a normal airplane, whether it be a Piper Archer or a B-52 or an F-15, if you're, let's say, a half a degree nose high, you climb a little bit and you can sense that and you can push the nose over a little bit and regain your altitude. And similarly, if you're off a little bit in heading, well, you just correct that. But if you're going Mach 5 or Mach 10 and you're slightly off, I mean, you're going to go wildly because you're going so much faster. 
it's going to translate into enormous deviations from your desired flight path. So it seems to me that guidance and control is a pretty serious issue for these very high-speed airplanes. You can't have the kinds of flight control deviations that you might in a, in, a low, in a slower airplane. Let's talk about what is the guidance and control considerations that are specific to hypersonic aircraft. Well, it's not just in terms of where you want to get to. It's also in terms of the heat that you're generating, right? Because if you put a little more AOA on the airplane, you're getting the shock wave closer on one side of the vehicle than you are on the other. So being able to control the vehicle becomes extremely important. And most of these vehicles are fully autonomous. There's not a pilot on board to figure out, uh, I'm a little nose high, I'm a little nose low. So the software that's developed, and in fact, we contracted with Draper to develop our software, is very complex. And, and we run it through a whole series of tests to make sure that uh, we don't find a cliff in where that vehicle is going. So GNC is one of the more challenging features with these hypersonic vehicles. An INS tied to a GPS might be fine, but I may need something better than GPS updates. So how do I update to a vehicle moving that fast? You know, you think about some of the uh, terrain mapping features that have been used in the past. Well, what kind of material am I looking through to map the terrain, right? So it goes back to a materials problem. What kind of antennas will be able to survive that environment? Because ultimately, I've got to get some information to the vehicle on its location. Or I need to advance my inertial systems to the point where they don't have to rely on external outputs, right? Advanced inertial systems. So we got to test those things. And then all of that has to feed back into the logic of the vehicle to say, just put a, a little bit of rudder here or, or Elevon there to get me to where I want to go. I can't put a pedostatic system on the airplane. That will melt, right? So how do I get things like angle of attack and angle of side slip, or for that matter, airspeed and altitude on a vehicle that can't put a pedal tube out on the front of it? And there are ways to integrate to get that information. There are ways to pull that out from a GPS signal. All of those things represent lag, right? Because you have to do processing time. So it becomes very challenging to pull all that together and get a solution real time so you know where you are, not where I was, right? So that continues to be, again, another active area of research for hypersonics. And folks want to go beyond that, right? Not only is this vehicle fully autonomous, but it's communicating with another vehicle that's fully autonomous, and they want to somehow work together. And that other vehicle can be at hypersonic speeds or it could be at subsonic speeds. So again, how do you communicate these things to each other? You know, if you're at Mach 12, how do I communicate through a plasma sheet? If I'm at Mach 5 or Mach 6, maybe not as such a big deal. But those are all things that need to be considered when you start putting together your GNC. So putting together all these different disciplines, all the things that we have to do in order to fly hypersonically, we need to test things. And typically we want to ground test before we flight test because when we flight testing is extremely expensive and it's hazardous and sometimes you don't get the vehicle back. Whereas with ground testing, you don't have that. So how do we ground test a hypersonic vehicle? Very creatively would be the answer. Because you'll find that not a single wind tunnel 
can actually generate the conditions you would see in flight. So you go to different wind tunnels that have different capabilities. Some might be able to get you to the uh, speed you're looking for, but only for milliseconds at a time. Milliseconds is actually a long time for testing, so you can get good data. But there may be other times where you're trying to test an air-breathing engine, and I need to run at Mach 5 to Mach 6 continuously. Those types of tunnels are very rare, but they exist. Even if I can get to the Mach number, I'm not getting to that Reynolds number. I'm not getting to the temperatures. So I have to go to an ArcJet tunnel to get to the temperatures. But now I'm not really getting clean information because many of these ArcJets are basically rocket engines blowing onto your test article. So you, you use a combination of ground testing systems to help inform and guide your computational fluid dynamics. And then you make that leap in faith that I've got the CFD right now, I can use it to extrapolate to what's going to happen in flight. And that's typically the, the way it goes. But even beyond that, the subsystems, will they survive in that environment that you're going to put it in? There's impact shocks, there's vibrations, there's temperatures. We've talked about the heating on the outside of the vehicle. Well, to control that heating, we often build these hypersonic vehicles like thermoses which means the heat can't get in. But that also means when you turn on your avionics and they start warming up, the heat can't get out. So how do I manage that thermal system? So you do a lot of that testing on the ground. And then ultimately, before you go fly that autonomous vehicle, you want to fly it in a system on the ground, something like a hardware in the loop that has the uh, real flight actuators that are control loaded so that you can simulate the entire flight on the ground and make sure that software works before you go off and fly it in the air. So we have our hypersonic vehicle. We've analyzed it with computational fluid dynamics, as you've talked about, and we've done all this ground testing, but in the end we have to fly it. So flight testing is an old discipline and it's been going back at least to the Wright brothers, I guess you could say even before then, but how does flight testing change? What are some particular considerations that we need to keep in mind when we're doing flight testing uh, with hypersonic vehicles? Well, the first question you have to ask yourself is where am I going to test, right? There's not a lot of places here in the U.S. where you can test hypersonic vehicles over land. So we typically test hypersonic vehicles over water like we did X-53, X-51, like we did Hawk, Arrow. Well, what does that mean? It means that we often don't recover the test article because we're launching them out over the water. So it would really be nice if we can recover the test articles. You know, one of the things we talked about in X-51, we did not get the acceleration we were looking for on the first flight. We thought we knew why. By the time we got to the fourth flight, which was completely successful, it still didn't have the acceleration we were looking for, and we still don't know why. And that's because we couldn't recover any of those vehicles. As we mentioned before, CFD is only going to get you so far. But we don't fly often enough to anchor these models. We do sounding rocket tests, and we try and use that to anchor models. But the sounding rockets don't typically fly the trajectories that we're looking for. So again, you're, you're kind of into that ground testing mode of what's the best platform for me to test on for a lower cost to help inform before I go do that $100 million, $200 million flight tests. And that tends to be part of the problem because 
why is that flight testing so expensive? Because we're throwing away these vehicles, we're not getting onboard data recording. We're relying on telemetry. So to do that, we need vehicles, surface ships, doing telemetry across the long ranges that these vehicles are flying. And so to get all the assets in place, we call it the string of pearls, that adds a huge cost to uh, flight tests. There are organizations like uh, the Test Resource Management Center that are looking for ways to bring down that cost through airborne assets, but that's still being worked. But now once you figure out where you're gonna test and how you're gonna get the data, the question is how many flight test vehicles can you actually build? They're, like I said, difficult to manufacture typically. And so the cost of testing tends to be high. I think I've read that the Air Force is going to be repurposing uh, RQ-4 Global Hawks as airborne telemetry relay vehicles for hypersonic testing. Yeah, that's actually the Test Resource Management Center. They're repurposing Global Hawks and Predators to allow them to crack hypersonic vehicles at a much lower cost than a bunch of loitering Navy ships. Why is hypersonic flight such a hot topic now? Pardon the pun. After all, we've been doing hypersonic flight. Let's see, we've been flying ballistic uh, missiles for about, what, 65 years? And 60 years ago, we were flying the X-15. We had some other things like the X-23 Asset Prime. We've been flying the space shuttle for, what was that, 40-something years? So hypersonic flight is an old subject. And yet it's now a very, very active area of engagement. What's the thing that's driving it now? Well, every one of those examples you mentioned were re-entry type vehicles, right? And like I said, that's actually a different problem than the one that we're trying to solve now. This country invented hypersonic flight in a sense. The X-15 was really the first and still is the first reusable hypersonic airplane. And we invented all that technology. There was this thing called the National Aerospace Plane, NASP. It was sold to the government through a think tank that a vehicle about the size of a F-15 could do a single stage to orbit. Talking about a 55,000 pound airplane, and that's how it was sold to the government. By the time the program was canceled a decade or two later, the vehicle weight had grown to over a million pounds. And why was that? It gets back into that discussion on the engine that we had. How do you take off and land using different propulsion methods? And it turns out, in order to get through that transonic pinch point where there's a whole lot of drag, in order to get to the speeds that I was looking for, in order to get to orbit, I needed a whole lot of fuel. So that grew the size of the airplane. And the size of the airplane grew, that grew the size of the landing gear. Well, the landing gear got heavier, so now I needed more fuel which means I needed a bigger airplane, which means the landing gear got bigger. And that's how that vehicle grew into a million pound monstrosity. But NASA said, okay, maybe that was a step too far, but we still need to develop that engine technology. And what came out of NASA eventually was the scramjet engine demonstrations of the X-43 using hydrogen. And they did get that out to Mach 9.7. And the X-43 was an unmanned aircraft launched from underneath the wing of the NASA's B-52, Falls 8. Falls 8, that's right. Used a a very large booster. The booster was huge compared to the uh, 
X43 itself. The booster got it to pretty much the speed you were looking for, the scramjet would light, and then uh, would continue to burn for some time. The Air Force laid out a program that started with the X-51. And what the Air Force wanted to do was get away from hydrogen and use a hydrocarbon. In their case, uh, JP-7, so gas fuel, right? And what's nice about hydrocarbon, eventually the X-43 engine melted because it got so hot. The hydrocarbon, you can actually use it to cool the engine. And when you pull that heat away from the engine and heat up the uh, fuel, the fuel's easier to crack and easier to burn. So it was a very synergistic setup. So why is this all so important, right? The story I like to tell is, at one point, the uh, program manager for the X-51, a good friend of mine now, but we were at each other's throats back then, was so upset with the B-52 maintenance at Edwards, he wanted to take the X-51 over to Burt Rutan and launch it off White Knight 2. And I told him, look, you can do that, but I think you would be telling a much more powerful story if you launched something that looked like a hypersonic missile, and we all agreed it wasn't, it was an engine demonstrator, but it looked like a hypersonic missile coming off a line B-52, not a NASA B-52. That would tell a very powerful story to our near-peer nations. And so he relented, he agreed, we did the test, and we told that powerful story, and everybody paid attention except for the Pentagon, because the Pentagon went off and did other things, and hypersonics lay dormant for about eight years. And what happened during those eight years? China said, wow, this is interesting. This may be a solution to taking out carriers. And so they set up their entire industry, well, really from academia to their version of industry to the military to solve how do we do hypersonics. And this is why it's such an important issue today, because they fielded a hypersonic missile. Russia has fielded a hypersonic missile. The U.S. is still building prototypes. We haven't fielded anything, and we feel like we're behind in a technology that we invented. And what we're trying to do now is how do we catch up, right? As you know, General Hyten said when he retired, if you take a look at China, they've done about 100 flight tests over the last five years. We've done a handful. Whoever's flying more is learning more. And right now, we're not learning as much as anyone else. We need to get back in the game. The only way we're going to leap ahead of where these peer nations are now is to do more flight testing. And so there's a lot of emphasis on doing that. I know that you were deeply involved with the X-51. Can you uh, tell us some stories about that? And uh, what was your experience there? Yeah, so I got involved with the uh, X-51 as it was approaching uh, critical design review. I had done some things with it prior to that, but I basically took it from critical design review to first flight. I did the uh, mission planning, first mission planning of a, how do you launch a hypersonic vehicle off of B-52? And it was really uh, more choreography than mission planning, getting the chase ships involved, keeping track of temperatures, Things couldn't get too hot. Other things couldn't get too cold. It was really very interesting. We had to climb straight up to 50,000 feet, which meant we had to offload fuel. We took off where most B-52s land in terms of fuel. 
so that we can go straight to 50,000 feet and get this thing off our airplane before uh, we went out of temperature limits on certain planes. So it was really quite the uh, choreography. But I, I'll give you a couple of stories. One was the best radio call that I thought ever in a B-52. As we were taxiing out, my co-pilot called Tower and said, Tower, we'd like an unrestricted climb to 50,000 feet. And uh, Tower came back with, Roger, you're cleared. Wait a minute, you're a B-52. And my co-pilot said, yes, we know that. <laughs> and uh, Tower said, all right, you're cleared unrestricted to 50,000 feet. Good luck. It took us 45 minutes to get there, but we had the clearance. And the other part was 60 seconds prior to the first release, my co-pilot turned to me, and you think you think about everything when you're doing a flight test like this. There's always something you haven't thought about. He turned to me and said, hey, when that rocket lights, is that going to be like space shuttle bright? And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we were just quiet because neither of us really had the answer. And so we just lowered our visors and hoped for the best. So you don't think about everything. Uh, you do get surprised. But that first flight was actually uh, very successful. It came off beautifully. The engine lit. The uh, scramjet lit. It didn't stay lit as long as we had hoped. But it was the first time a scramjet engine not only climbed, but accelerated while it climbed. So it was a very important mission for the country and headed us really in the right direction. I just wish we hadn't put such a hiatus on the program. What did it look like and feel like from the cockpit? Did it feel too much? There's always a little bit of a, a kerchunk as it comes off the pylon, but very well handled because I had set up the fuel load so that uh, even though we lost about 3,000 pounds immediately off the uh, left side of the wing, I had about a 1,500-pound split between fuel tanks, so there was no large rolling moment. We were at 50,000 feet, though, so I like to tell folks I was racking the airplane up to 20 degrees bank. We were very ginger with the controls. The book said I can only go to 18, but I, I did get to 20 because I like living life on the edge, right? It looked fantastic flying away, but my concern was as I rolled away from it to head back to Edwards, the plume seemed to be catching up with me. I couldn't turn faster than the plume was coming at me, and I really did not want to fly through that plume. So that was really my only concern. But uh, other than that, it felt like any other uh, release of uh, any other store that I, I dropped off the uh, shoulder station. Was the release handled through the OAS, the offensive avionics system, or was it a standalone release system? The vehicle, the X-51, thought it was a JDAM. So it all went through the OAS. And it said, I'm a JDAM, I'm a JDAM, until it came off the hooks and said, holy crap, I've got an ATACMS booster. <laughs> I'm an X-51. And it went off and did its thing. Oh, that's interesting. So it's it was not a test unique thing like the uh, X-43 or the X-15 used? No. And we did that on purpose, right? Because it was easier to use something that pre-existed. And it's not unlike what the B-52 does today with some of the newer hypersonic weapons. They pick a, a systems management overlay to use, and, and that's what they use. Let's talk about Stratolaunch. As you've pointed out, the United States is playing catch up with hypersonics. And one of the advantages that we have in the United States is not only do we have a government, but we've got a private sector, which can be very innovative. And one of those companies is Stratolaunch, which you're the current chief technology officer of. So 
What is Strato Launch about? Where are you located? What are you all trying to do? Well, you're right about privately funded. Uh, we've had no uh, government contracts to, in the development of our big airplane that we call Rock or our hypersonic test beds that we call Talon. And by the way, that's Rock without a K, named after a, a mythical bird of prey. This company started off as a spaceship company with the intention of launching a 500,000 pound spaceship. And that's what set the size of our airplane rock. We uh, did not continue down that road. Our previous investor passed away. But we, even before then, we had started looking at how can we improve in terms of hypersonic testing and had already started looking at hypersonic test beds. And so we got picked up by another firm and another private equity firm. And we were given the uh, focus of looking at hypersonic flight. So what we want to do is provide both affordable and reusable hypersonic flight testing to help our customers accelerate technology development. That's really the goal of this company. So to do that, we don't want to build an experimental airplane or we don't want the airplane to be seen as the experiment. We use as high level technologies as we could so that our customers can bring their technologies, their experiments to us. Now, Rock, by some metrics, is the world's largest airplane, I believe. Certainly by wingspan, yes. So tell me about Rock. It's got a 385-foot wingspan, so larger than a football field. And some people, you know, they kind of think about that and say, that, yeah, that's pretty big. I think what really kind of sells it is we can taxi over a two-story building. It's very big, about 240 feet long, 50 feet high at the tail. The airplane is a unique configuration, all composite build, scaled composites built it for us. But all the components within the airplane, the, the engines, the generators, the valves, the landing gear, they all came off of two 747s. So the airplane actually flies with the reliability of a 747. I think in the nine flights we've had, we only had one squawk, and that was fixed about 10 minutes after landing. The airplane's uh, dual fuselage, the fuselages are about 100 feet apart from each other. So the pilots sit about 50 feet off the center line of the runway. There's 28 tires on the airplane, 34 moving panels for the uh, landing gear, big barn door flaps that also serve as air brakes. In fact, I call them air brakes on the wrong side of the wing. They don't really help much in lift. They're more drag devices. And we've flown it about nine times for about 30 hours. It's got a ceiling of over 40,000 feet. We are still in the envelope expansion business for that part of it, but we can launch from anywhere from over 20,000 feet to about 40,000 feet, depending on what our customers need. Now, when you say launch, uh, if I recall, you have this enormous wing and you've got two fuselages on there. The payload is carried on a pylon between the two fuselages underneath the wing, correct? Right, right on the center wing, right at the center line, which gives it a very clean place to release from. Probably one of the cleanest release systems out there because you're so far away. I mean, you've got 100 feet between the two fuselages. Currently, our pylon uh, only carries talent, but we certainly have the capability to put bigger pylons on there and launch bigger vehicles. Like I said, the, the airplane was designed to carry 500,000 pound spaceship. So we have room for growth on this airplane. So 
the rock is essentially the first stage. It gets you up to 20 or 40,000 feet and, you know, high subsonic speed. The second stage that goes to hypersonic speed is called Talon A, and that's your hypersonic vehicle. So please describe Talon A. Right. So Talon A was built on, and I like to say, to look to the future, we look to the past. What did the X-15 do and how was it successful? So the CONOPS certainly informed us, but Talon A is a very different vehicle than the X-15. It is not made from Inconel. It is made from composites. So how do we protect it? We wrap it with Space Shuttle Legacy tiles and felt reusable insulation blankets, the, the frizzy. It's a very robust test bed. Like I said, it's not intended to be the experiment. The thermal protection system is certainly very well known. Composite manufacturing, that's what this company does best. The landing gear, all these things, the actuators, they've all flown before. The only really new component is our Ursa Major engine, the Hadley rocket engine. We've got it on a propulsion test stand right now here at Mojave. We've done a couple of hot fires. We've got a few more planned. We've done a whole lot to get ready for our first flight, and we've got a lot of confidence in that engine. As I said before, it's fully autonomous. We put Draper contract to build us the software, but we have our own hill, our own hardware in the loop here to test the system. It's designed to be a robust test bed. We'll get to those conditions. Our customers can put payloads on to advance their technologies. For example, if I've got a material, like we talked about earlier, a window that I want to be able to look through at hypersonic speeds, we can test that window on the outside of our vehicle. We want to test the cameras themselves. Well, we'll test the windows first to make sure they don't melt. And then we'll put the cameras behind it. We'll go off and do that testing. Radars, test radomes, apertures, and then the radars that go inside. We can test uh, those advanced inertial units that I talked about. We have the capability to test those. We could test right along software. We could test things like flush air data systems that give us the pedostatics without actually putting a pedostatic tube on there. So it's a series of pressure measurements that we can through mathematics, turn into mock, alpha, and beta, those important parameters. So a whole variety of things that we can test both inside and outside the vehicle. And oh, by the way, that sky range that I talked about that the Test Resource Management Center is putting together, they can look at us when we fly and they can tune their systems. And other systems on the ground that want to look at us or overhead assets can look at us. So we provide a test bed not only for our customers who are riding along, but for other customers that want to take a look at what a hypersonic vehicle would look like. On the subject of customers, what is the status of the Rock and Talon A program right now, and who are your customers to the extent you can talk about that? Yeah, so we've made some public releases, and I can certainly talk to those. We've done uh, feasibility studies for both the uh, Air Force Research Laboratories and for the Missile Defense Agency. We did those uh, about two years ago. We have signed uh, flight contracts with both the uh, Air Force Research Labs and with the Test Resource Management Center. Again, TRMC would like to take a look at us with their range hawks, they call them, and their predators. And they're testing new technologies on those vehicles, and we're helping to inform those technologies. Let's go to your uh, call sign. That's, that's typically how we 
finish up these conversations. I, I know that she told me your call sign is Doc. So is there a story behind it other than the obvious? <laughs> yeah, there actually is. So when we started signing out electronically at the bomber test through a program they called Cool, and it went up on this big board, you sign out the way the FAA signs you out, your first two initials and your last name. Well, my first two initials are DR. So folks started calling me Dr. Millman because of the way I was signing out. Then I went and got the PhD. And so folks in a tribute to uh, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, spies like us, started calling me Dr. Doctor. And then uh, Doctor just kind of stuck. And some folks just shortened that to Doc. Well, thank you very much. This has been fascinating. I think that people have been watching uh, Top Gun Maverick and they and they see a hypersonic vehicle and that's all cool in the movies. But I don't think people realize, first of all, the difficulty of doing something like this, the challenges ahead of us, and the fact that it's not just in the movies. This is very much real. Absolutely. And in fact, we're, you know, we're trying to do our first hypersonic launch before the middle of this year and be fully reusable before the year is out. So this is a year of execution for us, and you can look for some pretty exciting announcements from us just this year. If our listeners want to learn more, where can they go on the web to find out information? Stratalaunch.com. And if there's any young engineers that are looking for a job, careers.stratalaunch.com. We are hiring. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.